This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Projecting what will happen by the end of the 21st century has become a hot political topic. Everyone knows that climatologists now feel they can estimate with some accuracy the temperature of the world, the heights of the ocean, the frequency of hurricanes, the number of deaths induced by especially hot weather, and much more that's going to happen 80 years from now. But it's not only climatologists that are in the prediction industry. My colleagues Eric Hanyashek and Ludger Wisman have been saying for some years that enormous benefits can be reaped by the end of the century if only the world generated higher levels of human capital. The economy could grow by trillions more if people received a better education. So what should the world do today? Should we use our limited resources to limit the rise in the temperature of the world, or should we invest in education? Where would we get the biggest payoff by the end of the 21st century? Well, it turns out that Bjorn Lomborg, the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, has taken a good look at these questions, and he's taken on much of the conventional wisdom. He doesn't dispute the scientific predictions that the world will be warmer in the future than it is today unless actions are taken to prevent it. But he doesn't think those consequences will necessarily be as dire as many say. So, Bjorn, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Paul, it's good to be here. Well, so why are you a skeptic on the consequences of climate change? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not really a skeptic. I'm simply pointing out that we need to look at what are going to be the actual impacts. And a lot of uh, climate economists have spent a long time trying to evaluate what are the costs of all these things that are going to happen. And no doubt global warming will make things on average worse. So it is a problem, but we need to get a sense of proportion. So just to give you a, a, a sense, you know, when, when people talk about some of the really terrible things that happen from global warming, uh, they often point to hurricanes, which indeed is one of the biggest costs of all extreme weather in the world. Uh, yet, and aren't if, there many more now that the just, world Earth is warmer? Ju just to get a sense of proportion, right now, uh, hurricanes probably cost the world about 0.04% of global GDP. So while they're a problem, they're certainly not in any way the massive Im impact that you that you sometimes get this, uh, the sense of if you look at CNN, because what you're really seeing is a very select issue where you're seeing people being threatened by these hurricanes. Now. When you look ahead... But how about flooding? I mean, flooding. the ocean is going to rise and so, Boston so, is going to be underwater, so, I'm told. So, so flooding, and again, uh, w we need to just take a step back and look at the data. Uh, so flooding uh, probably cost, uh, for instance, the U.S. Uh, about 0.2%, so it's actually much more costly of, uh, of, of GDP uh, every year. So it is an issue, and it's certainly something that we should be concerned about. But if we look at what is the total impact of global warming right now, the best economic models tell us that it is about zero. So un unlike what you typically hear, it is not such that on things Cape are Cod, getting where the people yeah, seeing yeah. their houses go down, they, yeah. they don't think it's zero. Yeah, no. And, and that's, of course, why the economists, and, and again, I'm not making this up or just taking a particularly skeptical uh, view of this. This is what the UN Climate Panel told us in latest full report. Uh, and it's been updated by uh, uh, William Nordhaus, who won the first uh, uh, Nobel Prize in Climate Economics, to look at what is the cost of global warming right now and what will be the cost in the future. The total cost is about zero. Yes, there are some places where it's actually a net negative right now, but there are also places where it's a net positive. And that's why if you average this on across the globe, it's about zero. 
Now, by the end of the century, the cost will be somewhere between 2 and 4% of GDP. So this is a real problem, but it's not the end of the world. Uh, to go back to the hurricanes that we talked about, we're actually expecting that because we'll be much richer by the end of the century, we'll actually be much more resilient towards hurricane damage. So instead of 0.04% damage from uh, uh, hurricanes right now, it would be about 0.01% by 2100. Now, because there's global warming, global warming will make hurricanes more ferocious. It'll actually make slightly fewer hurricanes, but more ferocious hurricanes, and that will possibly double the impact. So we'll see a 0.02% damage from hurricanes. So it'll be worse than it otherwise would have been, but it'll actually be less worse than it is right now. Because we'll have so much more money to pay for the cost of dealing no, with hurricane and, and, damage. And we'll be much, much more resilient. Remember, if hurricanes hit Florida, uh, you get you know, billions of dollars in damages, but very few people die. But if hurricanes hit, uh, say, Guatemala, as, as Hurricane Hitch did back in the 90s, it wipes out uh, a third of their economy. It stays on for years. Tens of thousands of people die because they're poor and hence much, much more vulnerable. And so what will happen when we get richer, we're actually going to be better able to deal with many of these issues. Again, it doesn't say it's not a problem. It is a problem. But we need to sort of step off the ledge and have this catastrophic conversation about how it's basically going to eradicate humanity. That's not what's the case. Well, what's the downside of taking steps to reduce the size of this problem? You say it's a problem. You say that there, there can be steps taken to mitigate it. So what's the downside to try to slow down the rate uh, at which the Earth gets warmer? Fundamentally, that it also costs money. Because if it didn't, if it, we, we would actually make money, of course, we'd already have been doing it. Uh, so switching to less uh, uh, reliable, less uh, effective, more costly forms of energy, which is typically what we try to do when we switch to solar or wind and biomass and all these other ways to cut our carbon emissions, also have costs. Most of those costs are actually not in the actual subsidy cost, which we have to pay, but the fact that it slows down growth slightly. So again, what we're likely to see is if we cut more carbon emissions, we will also get slightly lower growth. Now, all economists would say this is a trade-off. At the one hand, if you don't cut anything, cutting the first ton of CO2 is going to be very cheap, and it's going to cut the worst effects of climate change because it's going to cut the very highest temperatures. That's probably a very good deal. That's actually what the data shows. On the other hand, trying to cut the last ton of CO2 is going to be very costly, and it's only going to cut a little bit of climate damage. So that's probably not the worth the while. That's exactly what the, you know, the cost and benefits so of climate change. So does that mean that the Paris Accords are pretty good. They got voluntary compliance or at least promises from lots of countries around the world and they're going to maybe attack the worst of the problem? Is, well, so yes. what, how, what's you, your assessment you, of you, the you, Accord? You would, yeah. you would hope, uh, but unfortunately uh, the, the, the Paris Accord is a good in political sense that it actually tries to set, solve this problem by letting nations do what they think is right themselves rather than trying to force everyone else to uh, make, them, make them choose as Kyoto and, uh, and other treaties did before. 
But the problem is also that most of the countries that are promised are the countries where it's going to be the costliest to cut carbon emissions. And so we estimate the total cost of, of Paris is in the order of one to two trillion dollars a year. Uh, so that's not a trivial amount. That's one to two percent of global GDP. Yet now, it's when does that got, kick in? Does that so this is this is by 2030 when all the promises have kicked in. So likely the cost. Now is very, so very low. So, what do you envision the economy at that point in time? Uh, the, you said it's one to two, one point two trillion. One, one to two, yeah, it's one to two trillion dollars, or one to two per, uh, percentage points of, of the global economy by two thousand thirty. So, roughly a uh, hundred trillion dollars. And again, uh, uh, given the numbers are fairly nebulous, I don't think we need to nail that down uh, further than that. But, but the real point here is to recognize that we're paying, you know, real. And significant money, it's by no means what's going to take us to the poorhouse or anything, but real money to achieve certain amount of out outcome. Unfortunately, we, we estimate that the total impact of doing all of the Paris promises, even throughout the rest of the century, so after paying, you know, say, uh, 70 to $140 trillion, we will only have cut temperatures about 0 0.3 Fahrenheit degrees Fahrenheit, uh, and and possibly even less than that. As a so, distinct from what is the expected... So that'll be about 7 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. 7 so we'll, degrees, yeah, and we'll so get about a six, third of six, 1 so we'll, degree yeah, So we'll be at, at 6.7 instead, which is nice, and it's not bad in that sense. We estimate that every dollar spent will probably do on the order, and remember this is very, very hard to do, uh, somewhere between 20 and 40 cents of climate damage. So you're doing a little good, but actually you're wasting money because obviously so, you, so had you're we gonna given get 40 out this cents money, back on the dollar. It's about yes. what happens to me when I start betting against the Patriots. Right? <laughs> so uh, see, I'm not well, very well into American uh, sports, but I get I get the point. So so now what if you spent this money in other ways? How would you because one of the points of the Copenhagen consensus is that there are other ways to deal with real problems out there. So what would you do instead with these dollars that yes. you just so, talked about? So we worked with lots of economists to look across all areas and say, where can you spend a dollar and do the most good? The, the important thing is to recognize that there are some good ideas within climate. And so we actually point out, for instance, investing research and development in green energy, which would basically further innovation so that we would quicker get green energy to be cheaper than fossil fuels. And then, of course, everyone would switch. That turns out to be a very good idea. Every dollar spent will do about $11 of climate benefit. So great idea. Let's please do more of that. But we also look across a wide range of other areas because climate is not the only thing that worries people in the developing world. Actually, when you ask them, it's the, wor it's the thing that worries them the least. They want good jobs. They want better education. They want health care. They want nutrition. So let's talk about I'm, education. And I'm because pretty that's sure you've invited me as, are uh, eager to, to hear talk about. For, for, so for uh, yeah, yeah. if you were to put at least some of this money into education, what would you do with it and how much benefit do you think you would get from that? So we did a study on the sustainable development goals, which was basically across the entire world on f focusing where can you spend money. And one of the things we found was if you focus on getting more preschool, especially in sub-Saharan Africa where there's very little preschool, it's very cheap because the teachers don't have to know very much. It's very easy to do. And it has huge benefits in the long run because you basically get these kids more interested in staying in school and learning more and hence 
becoming more productive when they come out uh, at the other end. So we actually estimated that within schools for every dollar spent, if you focused on preschool in sub-Saharan Africa, you could do $33 of social good. That's an incredibly good investment. There's two other things that you need to remember. One is that has actually nothing to do with education, but it happens to be one of the best education policy you can do. Get good food to kids when they're zero to two year olds. If you get them to develop their brains better by giving them good food, we know that when they get into school, they will be much more able to learn. And hence, even if they're in crappy school, they will end up becoming much more productive. So nutrition. Nutrition to small kids, not nutrition everywhere else, but nutrition to small kids, zero to two year olds, every dollar spent there will do $45 of social good basically because they'll be smarter when they go through school and hence they will end up being more productive in their adult lives. What we found also in India and other places is uh, streaming kids. So according to their teaching them, according to their ability, uh, as you know, we have several uh, 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 randomized controlled trial studies, uh, for instance, from uh, New Delhi that actually shows that putting them in front of a computer uh, just one hour every day helps them improve their test scores because it helps the uh, the poorest of the students, the ones that are doing the worst, they sort of get helped at their level and the smartest of the students get helped on their level. So you can actually have them all in one class, but teach them differentially so that they learn the most they can. We estimate every dollar there would actually do $61 of social good. So the amazing thing is once you start looking at where can you spend resources and do a lot of good, you can find some very specific education policies that would be amazing. Unlike, for instance, many others where we look at secondary school and we get paybacks of four to six dollars back in the dollar. So nope. still good, but not as good. A secondary education then and finishing college, is, is this a worthy way of spending the dollars or don't you get that much of a return? And is that what your consensus group So we, we definitely find that you get much less uh, back on your dollar when you go up to secondary, especially in tertiary uh, education, which is not very surprising. We know that it costs more and it helps many fewer people. Uh, and typically, uh, it'll also only increase your value uh, somewhat more fractionally. But it's it still could have spillover effects. I mean, if yes. you get a more, uh, you could be growing human capital at the upper end and you could been, then have a more innovation in other sectors of society. So just exactly how and, how big the impact could be might be a little bit hard to and estimate. Yes, and, and again, we estimate, like most uh, education economists, we estimate the benefits on, on your pay later on, uh, given the change in your uh, your standard score, for instance. So, so clearly, if you have an extra benefit in the sense that you help innovation be driven in society, but you don't get that personally reflected in your paycheck, maybe we're underestimating Well, it. finally, I want to ask you, what is the one thing you would do with the Paris Accord money that you think could do the most good for the most people <laughs> over the next uh, uh, half century or more. So yeah. the amazing thing, and I, th- I think the thing we don't quite get is, if the Paris Accord is gonna cost one to two trillion dollars, I actually can't spend that on just one thing. It would actually be able to pay pretty much all the amazing things that we could do in humanity. So for instance, pay for uh, uh, for contraception for women, which we know would not only help many more kids and women to survive, but also increase the demographic dividend. It could give health benefits 
benefits we know for about a billion dollars, so one thousands of what we're talking about, we could save one million kids from very easily tackleable uh, uh, infectious diseases by getting them immunized. We could help a lot of older people with heart medication. Uh, uh, we could get food, as we talked about, for small kids. We could get education uh, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. We could help biodiversity for uh, uh, getting uh, getting more uh, uh, coral reefs uh, protected. Uh, there's lots and lots of stuff. And so we've done a whole list of things that the world could invest in. And if we had one to two trillion dollars, we could actually do pretty much all of these great things. So it's uh, the real question is, do we want to do a little bit of good with this one to two trillion dollars? Or do we want to do an amazing amount of good? And I so Bjorn, I got to ask you this question. It all sounds so sensible. Why is it that nobody is proposing to do this? Why is it that you're a lonely voice out there and there are, isn't some political figure that's picking this up and pointing this up? Well, I, I think two things. First of all, if you if you talk to most people in developing countries, they have very very different priorities, and they much more obviously focus on the immediate things that actually concern their citizens. But you're right, in much of the Western uh, world, the consensus and the thoughts are on the things that capture the headlines. And and a hurricane uh, and a tornado and flooding, it's just much, much better news on CNN than the stuff that I'm talking about because it's kind of boring, it's old school, it's, uh, you know, uh, it, it, there's no good pictures in this. The point is just, we shouldn't be allocating the world's resources against who has the cutest animals and the most crying babies. We should be allocating it against what actually does the most good. That's boring and that's why it's never gonna succeed, but what I'm hoping and what we're trying to do with our, uh, with our uh, research is to, if, if you will, give a slight tailwind to the world's best ideas and headwind to the worst ones. Well, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Bjorn Lomborg of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, who has looked at a wide range of ways of investing our resources so as to improve the quality of life on, on this earth. And uh, thank you very much, Bjorn, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks a lot, Paul. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern Time.